For so many of us, our day-to-day is filled with feelings of bondage, of being stuck. For some of us, it is being stuck with internal struggles, fears, even addictions that hold us tightly. For others of us, it is being stuck in a set of rules we dare not break, fearing what others and God will think of us if we are fully known. But what if there is more for us? What if there is freedom? The text is printed for you in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, there are a few on the back table. I want you to grab one of those. That's our gift to you. Uh, Always good to have the, the text in front of you so you know I'm not just going on at the mouth. Which I do have a tendency to do sometimes. We are in the, the final two weeks. That's all we have left here in our series in Galatians um, as we've been looking since, uh, or since, the, since Labor Day, I guess, or since, uh, yeah, day after Labor Day, we've been, we've been spending our time in Galatians. Our, our hope as elders, our hope has been that this series would push on us as a church as to what the nature of the gospel is. What, what is the central message of Christianity, the core, the, the distinctive of this thing that we identify with? In Galatians, this letter uniquely presses on us in this um, because, because it was written to a congregation that's struggling with just that. What, what is the nature of the gospel? Is it Jesus plus something else or is it just Jesus? And so this week, uh, he, Paul, the Apostle Paul, starts to wrap up his letter by returning to this category that we've looked at so many times, this category of trust or what he calls in, this, in these verses, boast. So if you have your place in Galatians 6, our habit here is to stand um, as the, the, the scriptures read before the sermon. In honor of God's word, we're going to be reading verses 11 through 16 of Galatians chapter 6. This is the word of God. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may make may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For, for even those who are circumcised don't themselves keep the law. They desire to have you circumcised, they may boast in your flesh. But far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. It's God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Lord, as we, as we come during this time, Lord, all of us coming in this room with, with different things, different, uh, different stories, different pressures on our hearts, I just pray you'd let those melt away. You'd speak to us in the midst of our time this morning, that you would preach your gospel to us. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see you, hearts to receive you. Glorify your name. Make Jesus and his work great. Let the one who speaks fall away. You alone hold the words of eternal life, Lord. So we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. Now, whether you are in the legal profession or not, and there are several of you in the room, um, but w- whether or not you've probably seen some courtroom trial or drama and have, the, have some understanding of what a closing argument is, right? The time in which the attorney's trying to 
tie up any loose ends, bring the story to a conclusion, try and push the, the final kind of uh, bit of information out there so as to draw all the conclusions you want to be made during deliberation. That is a bit of what is going on here in our text this morning. It's the summation of these powerful points. It is what you want people leaving the room with. And, and Paul is doing that here. He's communicating with us this morning what he wants to make sure we take with us. And so as we look at this, uh, we want to look at it in three ways. And there's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful. But if not, leave it there. But we're going to look at this three ways. We're going to look at the ends of legalism. The ends. We're going to look at the end of legalism. And then finally, we're going to look at the start of life. Okay, so legalism's ends, its end, and then the start of life. Now, let's start by looking at legalism's end. Now, in even calling it that, I'm assuming that everyone in here knows what legalism is, which is probably a bad assumption, because we all have different opinions. You've been a Christian a long time, you have one certain opinion. If you're not a Christian, you're just exploring the stuff, you, you, you do it, just whatever. You don't even know what it is. So, here's what legalism is. In the scriptures, legalism is thinking that God's acceptance of you, God's pleasure in you, all of those things is located in you. Whether it's through what you do, through some ritual you do, through the company you keep, through a value system, the color of your skin, like whatever, God's pleasure in you comes from you. It's something that you do. And Paul has been saying over and over again that that is not Christianity. That's not Christianity. That is, in fact, the opposite of the gospel of Jesus. But verse 11 is important as we come into what he talks about in terms of the ends here. So look, because it assures us that this is the core of what Paul wants to get. Look there, he says, see what large letters I write to you in my own hand. Now, this is a little weird, so follow me. The the common practice during the day uh, that Paul is writing is that Paul would actually, in fact, not be writing. Paul would be dictating something. And there would be someone else, a secretary, uh, uh, a transcriber, so to speak, who would be writing down uh, the substance of what he wants to talk about. And at the end of a letter in the ancient world, you would, the, the actual person who was doing the dictation would take, his, take the quill and pen or whatever he's using to write with and would actually sign his name to say, see, I, or her name to say, I have, this is my approval, these are my words, these are true to my words. Paul, however, picks up the pen a little early. He picks up the pen not to sign his name, but to to write a little more. And when he says this thing about, see with what large letters I write to you, he's not talking about the fact that Galatians is long, because it's not. I mean, six chapters is hardly a long letter. Uh, Romans is 16, so that gives you some context. What he means is not large letters in terms of the work, large letters in terms of the letters. Like he's writing big letters, and why would that make a difference? Well, most scholars will tell you that they think Paul had an eye problem. In fact, in Galatians 4, he talks about the fact that, like, he says, I, I would say that you, you folks loved me so well, you would have plucked out your own eyes to give them to me if you thought that would, you could, and that would help. So that, some other things that Paul talks about in terms of a thorn in the flesh in 2 Corinthians and some other places, scholars will say that they think Paul had an eye issue. So when he's saying that, see what large letters I am writing to you uh, here in my own hand, that what Paul is doing is he's trying to let them know that what's coming next is literally, this is, I am writing this. This is the important part for me. Okay? Then he says this. All those who wish to make a good showing in the flesh, these are the ones who compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. All right. Now, on the surface of that, that's really clear, right? I mean, Paul is saying that uh, whatever is going on there is being done so that 
these folks can avoid persecution. They are pushing a religious practice to avoid their own persecution. In other words, one of the goals of legalism, one of the ends of legalism is self-protection. It's about keeping yourself safe. The question is, why, right? Good question. Glad you asked. Here it is. First of all, remember, circumcision during, during uh, first century Judaism was a, was a symbol. It was a sign. Uh, it, it was understood as a sign that you're part of God's people. But Paul had argued that in the Old Testament, it was meant to be a signpost, right? As, a, as in telling you, go this way, and it's going to lead you to something else. Uh, but the problem is, is that many during Paul's day had taken that signpost and turned into the destination, right? That this practice was meant to post, was meant to, to, to push on, to point on beyond itself for the need of a changed nature, that something had to change in us. And Paul says that this sign was fulfilled in Jesus. But, again, during his day, someone made it not the signpost, but the destination, as if you're seeing a sign that says Disney World 90 miles, and you decide to, to stop the car, get out, and, and try and find a a roller coaster. Like, it's not going to happen. It's not the place. Many looked to this one ritual as being what made God happy with you. You're pleasing to God. You have his smile. You are right in his eyes. If only you do this one thing. Right? And that's not unusual to us. That is the standard for, like, every world religion, every philosophical system, every self-help guru. Do what I tell you to do, and life's going to go well for you. Do what I tell you to do, God's going to like you. Do what I do, and you're going to get good karma. We, we, we believe this, right? Maybe those things are rituals. Maybe they're morals. Maybe they're just intellectual beliefs. But the point is the same. You do this, and you get good things. You put in X, you get Y. It's a simple equation, right? Now, Paul is saying that the motive here of this kind of Legalism, the motive from those that are coming to the Galatian church, pushing these rituals, those that had come in after Paul and are trying to change what Paul had said, that their motive is that they are trying to protect themselves. They're pushing their rule-keeping, they're pushing their rituals, they're pushing their legalism to protect themselves. They don't want to be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Raises the question, why would someone be persecuted for a cross? Well, isn't that strange if we think about it? I just said a second ago that every world religion, every philosophical system, in fact, has this notion that you do to get. You do this to get this. You do these things, you're going to get good things. Christianity, though, doesn't say that. In fact, it says something very different. Perhaps the opposite. See, Christianity tells us that our problem isn't our behavior. The whole, all of those other systems claim that, well, your problem is that you're not behaving the right way. But if you behave the right way, things will go well for you. If you keep these morals, if you, if you um, follow these rules, if you do these religious practices, things will go well for you. Christianity tells us our problem isn't our behavior, though. It's our hearts. It's not what we do. It's who we are. It tells us the problem is so deep that you and I can't do anything about it. And that if our deepest need, in fact, is going to be met, it's not going to be met by us at all, by any set of rules, by any set of practices. It'll be met by someone coming from outside of us to rescue us. And that is where the cross comes in. The cross of Christ ultimately tells us that our problem can't be prettied up like the deck of a sinking ship. It it, it tells us that, that... You can't deal with the stench of death by spraying some axe body spray on a corpse. It doesn't make it stop stinking. It tells us that our problem is bad enough that it actually requires a death. And that, friends, blasts our pride. What what Christianity tells us is that our problem isn't that we're not good enough. 
that, that it's actually far worse than that. It isn't that we aren't good. It's that we're independent. That we were made for dependence on God. Made to find our value in Him, our, our security in Him, our, our righteousness in Him. But now by nature we're alienated from Him. So that even our attempts at goodness are done independently. They further the problem. Whether that goodness is, is whatever your particular morality is. They actually make the problem worse. We need rescue. And telling people that will get you in trouble. Because generally, we don't like being told that we need someone else. That we're not good enough. We don't like being told that we can't fix things. But in fact, even though we can't fix things, we're still responsible for the problem. We don't like that. And so legalism, in this case, the one that Paul's talking to, a religious legalism, a kind of ritual practice, becomes a way around that. If I tell people that all they have to do is do this one little thing and God likes them, then they can go do it. And they won't, they won't get mad at me. I don't offend them. It's still in their hands. So one of the ends of legalism is self-protection. The other is hypocrisy. Look down at verse 13. Excuse me. Paul says this. Well, he says kind of this. He says, look, these yahoos, these guys, they don't even keep the law. Well, what they want to do is they want, because they can't keep the law, they want, to, they want to claim that they've done something good by having you go do something. Now, here's what he's talking about. Like, I could take the next hour or so and walk through the upteen laws in the Old Testament to kind of show how complicated the structure was, how comprehensive the structure was that dealt with all of life, and it nearly, it was impossible to be able to keep all of them, but I don't have to do that. You know what he's saying without, without me doing that. That we are, we, you and me, by nature, hypocrites. Right? None of us are consistent. Not a single one of us. Like, some of us in this room want to say, God is happy with me because I keep the Bible. I, I follow the Bible. Do you? Because like, the scripture says to love God with all of your being. Everything that you are. Which, which, by the way, isn't about action. It, it, it has a little to do with the heart. And, and not only to do that, but to love your neighbor as you would yourself. You doing that? I, if you think you do, you're, del, you're deluding yourself. But listen, maybe you're not part of that group that would say, like, I follow. Maybe, you're, maybe you would not self-identify as religious. Instead, you kind of go, look, I know I'm not great, but I'm doing okay. I'm pretty upstanding. And the reason why you think that is because you're really tolerant. Except of intolerant people. You just cannot stand those intolerant bigots. Your tolerance goes that far and no further. Do you see it? We're all hypocrites. And so maybe you're here this morning and you've believed that the church, one of the problems with the Christian church is that it's just so full of hypocrites. I'm here to tell you, you are right. And we have plenty of room for more. There's plenty of room. Come on in. If you depend on a rule, if you depend on a morality, a value system to make you feel adequate, to make you feel good, to make you feel holy, whatever, you will have to find a way to circumvent that. Because you and I can't even keep the rules we make up. And if you don't believe me on that, just wait seven months because New Year's Eve is coming. And when New Year's Eve comes, the day after is it's time for New Year's resolutions, which last about 30 seconds. We can't even keep the rules we make up. And the Bible is clear on why this is. It is because we were broken. 
The issue isn't our behavior. You see, the heart of the Bible's morality, the center of the Bible's morality, is a life that is turned outward. It's turned out towards others. But the problem is that by nature, the Bible also says that you and I are not turned outwards anymore. We're turned inwards. We're bent in on ourselves. We can't love God with all of our being. We can't love our neighbor because we're bent in on loving ourselves. Looking out for number one, protecting and exalting ourselves. So what we do is we try and cover over our broken hearts with a mask of behavior. We preach inclusiveness, except towards those who don't agree with our definition of inclusion. We preach that God loves sinners, but not those sinners who struggle with the sins that I hate. God loves sinners, but not the ones that I don't like. Listen, if you rest on your rule keeping, you will be revealed as a hypocrite and have nowhere to turn. So those are legalism's ends. Now let's look at its end. Look down at verse 14. Paul says this. But may it never be that I boast in anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. All right, stop there. If you checked out a few seconds ago as I took talking about hypocrisy, check back in with me, okay? Because this is like key. That word boast is important here. Now, most of us probably know the New Testament, the books of the New Testament were written in Greek, right? They weren't written in English. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But uh, as, as Hebrew stopped being so commonly known, um, Jews got together and they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. Because everybody knew Greek, right? And so when Paul uses that word boast here in the New Testament, that is a word in the Old Testament that is used to translate a word that means to trust. To trust. And so on the one hand, we are talking about what we brag on, right? Paul is going to talk about, look, I brag on Jesus. He's great. I brag on him. But more importantly... He's talking about where your trust is. And so Paul says, may it never be. That is the, this, in Paul's words, in all of his letters, this is the phrase he uses when he wants to get across. Never. never no. Like, th- that's the word. May it never be that I trust in anything except the cross of Jesus. Now, some of us, that sounds weird, right? Why would you put your trust in a cross? Well, most of us are probably aware of the notion that there was this dude uh, lived about a couple thousand years ago. His name was Jesus. That he lived, he, he was born in a very odd way, uh, was lived, and then he died. He was crucified by, uh, by the Romans. But so what? Well, here is where Christianity is different than any other option out there. Remember I said that Christianity says that our problem is deeper than our behaviors. It's far deeper than we think. It's not in our behaviors, it's in our hearts. That we're fundamentally broken. It says that we don't need a reformation. We need a rescuer. Right? Well, that is what the cross is all about. See, we have all by nature betrayed God. We, we were made to depend on him. But we have turned from him. And some of us have done that in irreligious ways. When I say you've turned from God, this is what most of us think of. You've done so in irreligious ways. You said, I, I don't need God. I don't want him. In fact, I'm not even sure if I believe in him. I'm going to go do my thing my way. That's what most of us think of. It turned from God, right? But there's another way you can do it. And it looks very religious. In which we say, I don't need you. Look, I've got this goodness thing. I'm doing all right with the top ten list. I've got the Ten Commandments down, more or less. It's pretty good. I, I I think I can manage this. I do the right things. I show up at church on Sunday. I worship. I put money in the basket when it comes by. Come on, man. What do you expect, right? Christianity says both of these perspectives are lost. 
Both are seeking independence. Both are betraying God. And betraying God is what the Bible calls sin. Okay? And that sin brings us under guilt. Now, I know that's not popular, but you know that this is what happens with a betrayal. Whether we're talking about betraying a friend, a spouse, a nation, whatever. Here's where Christianity is so unique. God doesn't ask us to fix the betrayal. We can't. Instead, he takes on flesh in Jesus to deal with it himself. And that's what the cross is about. God taking on himself the guilt of our betrayal of him in our place. This is where Paul's trust is. It isn't in himself. It's in Jesus. He knows that he can't make things up to God any more than you could make up for adultery by bringing a bouquet of roses. It doesn't cut it. Not even close. Instead, he places his faith. Paul places his trust, his boast on Jesus. And that leads us to what counts in verse 15. Look there. He says this. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision are anything, but instead a new creation. Okay. Paul's been making this closing argument. Now it's time for summation. This is where he sums it all up. I've said it before. I'm going to say it again. We, we tend to think... We, we live in a world of polarities. I know we don't want to. We think we want to live in the world of gray, but we don't. We exist in polarities. And so we think, God's not happy with me if I'm irreligious. That means I need to go to church more. I need to read my Bible. I need to, I need to uh, believe certain things, but I, I need to get this right. Or we go, wait a minute, God's not happy with me because of my religious stuff. That, I guess that means I need to go stop going to church. and stop. No, that, that's not what we're saying at all. Those things are meaningless, Paul says. What counts is a new creation. It isn't just about the cross. It's about the tomb. Now, when he says they're meaningless, when he says that, that, that they're not anything, what he doesn't mean is that they're bad. Right? The Bible does have an ethic. The Bible does talk about worship. Okay? These things are good. They're very good. But they can't be God. And the problem is, is that you and I want to take good things and we want to make them God. We want to take good things and we want to make them ultimate. When it comes to being right with God, when it comes to having his smile, religion can't help you, friends, because your problem isn't that you aren't religious. And irreligion can't help you because your problem isn't that you're too religious. Your problem, my problem, is that we are stuck in our independence. We don't need reformation. We need rescue. We need rebirth. And this, friends, is why Christianity stubbornly says, and I know it's stubborn, and I know that grates on us, Christianity stubbornly says that Jesus is the only way to get right before God. Because if, if Christianity just offered you another list of rules, Christianity just offered you another morality, then you could say it was just one option among many. Because it's just one morality amongst many, and, and there are a bunch of different moralities, and so just get right. If your problem is your behaviors, Christianity is just one option among many. If your problem is your heart, if your problem is that you're independent and need to return to dependence on God, and God has provided Jesus, the only way to get back to that dependence is through Jesus. And that means that it doesn't matter this morning if your life right now is a train wreck or a beauty contest. We are all the same. Christianity offers us not a morality, but a Messiah. It doesn't offer us rules. It offers us a rescuer. It doesn't offer us a goodness. It offers us grace. We all need a rescuer, and Jesus is offered to all of us freely. So that's the ends of legalism and its end. Now let me take a second, give us some takeaways. 
with the start of life. First, let's come to the end. Here's what I mean. It's not too much to say that the natural bent of the human heart is towards legalism, towards wanting to find our own method, whether you are a Christian or not. And the gospel pushes against this and needs to, to push against it, whether you are a Christian or not this morning. And it, the way that it does this is that the gospel both asks too much of us and requires too little of us. Okay, the gospel asks too much of us and requires too little. It asks too much because it calls us to give up ourselves. Not a little piece. Not this little corner we call our spiritual lives. Not our Sunday morning. Whether that's just between, you know, 11.15 and, and 12.30. Or whether it, you know, for some of us it's like from oh dark 30 to the mid-afternoon. Like, it doesn't, it asks for more than that. Christianity calls us to leave behind the notion that we can do it on our own. To give up our notion of what is right and what is wrong and our illusion that we define reality. But you and I don't want to do that. And so what we do with legalism is we compromise. We compromise. See, Jesus doesn't really want all of me. He just wants these behaviors. Jesus doesn't really want a relationship. He just wants me to believe the right things. Jesus won't ask for my identity to be in him instead of in my job or, or in my sexuality or in my intellect. He just really wants me to keep the rules. And I can do that. And what that ends up meaning is, I am accepted, I am loved because of those things. Not because Jesus rescued me and reconciled me to himself. We can't compromise. Our trust must be in him. So the gospel requires or asks too much of us, but it also requires too little of us. And here's what I mean by that. It doesn't ask us to perform. Jesus has performed for us. It doesn't ask us to atone for our wrongs, to kind of berate ourselves in guilt for weeks on end. Jesus has atoned for us. But we don't like that. And so we use legalism to control We want control. You see, legalism is about control because it is too risky for us to believe that someone actually loves us without us having to perform. That someone can actually see how bad things are in us and actually care for us. That God could actually care for us without having to perform for him. That Jesus would die for us while we're enemies. That's just too risky. It's easier for us to believe that he loves us when we are performing, when we're doing right things, when we aren't snapping at our kids or we're keeping up our community service or we're making others feel special. You see, that way, if we ever feel like we're not doing enough, we can always do a little bit more. The problem is, friend, when have you done enough? You have control, but at what cost? Because the reality is it's never enough. But Jesus is enough. So put away the legalism. Put away the compromise and control and see that God's grace for you in Jesus is in fact too good. But it is also very true. And lastly, Paul ends this by saying, peace and mercy be upon all those who walk according to this standard. What does it mean to walk according to the standard that what matters isn't religion or irreligion, but a new creation. Well, walking in the New Testament is a, is a metaphor for um, ordering your life, living like, doing things the way th- that are, they're supposed to be done, live like this, in other words. So what does it mean to live 
and order your life in such a way that what matters is new creation. It means ordering your life by the gospel of grace. And that's going to change at least three things. We're going to talk about three things. It's going to change three things, okay? The first is your view of you. The idea that what matters isn't religion or irreligion, but new creation fundamentally changes the way you understand yourself. Because it tells you that the problem is way worse than you thought. Way worse than you thought. If you are a Christian here this morning, you are so only, only because God poured out his grace on you. You are a hot mess, and so am I. You see part of it. You don't see the whole of it. It's way worse than you think. And so the gospel tells you, cheer up, because it really is worse than you think it is. Way worse. But secondly, it changes your view of others. I I often use the metaphor here in in, in this room. I talk about the fact that we tend to view God um, and our relationship to God as like trying to outrun the bear, right? That you don't have to outrun the bear, you just outrun the guy next to you. That's the important thing. Well, the gospel of grace comes in and tells us that the problem with that is that there's no guy running next to you. He's lying on the ground, and so are you. We are both helpless. Sure, your life looks different. Maybe your sin is a little more under the surface than mine, but we are all the same. We are separated from God by nature. And in need of rescue. And none of us more than any other of us. Which means that your neighbor, your coworker, that family member you think is so far from God. Or so close. They aren't. They are in the same need that you were. A sovereign work of God in their lives. Do you get what I'm saying? That person you think, Rick, I know, who you, I know you're trying to say this, but you don't understand. This person I work with. They, they don't, not only do they not believe in God, they, they can't even imagine how foolish you would have to be to believe in him. I know. And I'm saying that person is no further from the Lord than, than that friend of yours you know who, who goes to church every week but just doesn't have a relationship with Christ. And so I'm asking, I'm asking you this, can you believe that? Can you pray for that? Can you expect that in their lives? And if not, why? Because what matters is not religion or irreligion, circumcision, uncircumcision, but new creation. So it changes our view of ourselves. It changes our view of others. Finally, it changes the way we view Jesus. Because you see, we tend to want to view Jesus, God, however you want to talk about it right now, as a taskmaster or an addendum. He's either a taskmaster you have to serve This guy is just demanding, and he expects me to do these things, and if I don't, I'm done. But good news is, I'm good at these things, right? Or he's an addendum. I don't really need Jesus. I mean, I'm doing all right. I can just add a little Jesus over here on the side. We'll be okay. Just tack him on, like, here. Like, and I'll be good. (sighs) The gospel tells us he is neither of these. He isn't asking you to work hard. And he isn't saying that all you need is a little bit of his love love ethic on top of all of your awesomeness. Okay? He's saying that you are lost. That I am lost. But that he has loved us enough to come to us, initiate with us, live perfectly for us, die sacrificially for us, and offer all that he has done by grace. Can I ask you a question? If you're struggling with legalism here this morning, and you are either a Christian, maybe you're not, how can legalism compare with that? 
I'm not even going to argue truth with you here for a second, okay? Obviously, I believe all this is true. I want you to put that aside for a second. Let's not talk that. Let's talk aesthetic. Let's talk what is beautiful. I'm in an economic relationship where I do this and I get this. Or I have a God that has so loved me, he was willing to come, live, die, and rise again for me and offer it to me freely. Which is more beautiful? If you're, if you're stuck on the intellectual side and like, I don't know about truth, then think about the beauty and be allured by it. How can legalism compare with that? It can't. And that is why, friends, Christianity isn't called good advice. Because good advice you can dispense with. It's called good news. And it frees us to boast. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for your grace, your goodness. Thank you for your word that pushes on us and tells us that the gospel is nothing like what we want it to be. We want it to tell us that we're enough. We want it to tell us that, uh, that either, either we can do enough or that you don't care enough. But it tells us something different. It tells us that you care more than we could imagine and that you've done it all. And so, Lord, as we try and live into that as individuals, as a community, I pray that you would press on us not only the the truth and the beauty of that for us, but for all. And send us out into our city to be those conveyors of good news to a city that needs it, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.